Mystery of the Stone Tiger Chapter 19 Trapped Underground As the three girls held down the struggling, black-robed figure, Louise tore the mask from his face. Emil Gifford, she cried out. The captive's response electrified them. In a clipped British accent, he rasped, Ah, oh, what? I'm a tiger. Let me go, or I'll claw you all to pieces. Louise, Jean, and Elise let Emile stand up, but held on to him firmly. He tried to wrench himself from their grasp, but his efforts were futile. So you're the mysterious person who has been scaring Oak Falls half to death, Jean said angrily. I do not know what you're talking about, Emile replied stiffly. I have done nothing I was not told to do. Who told you to do it? Louise demanded. The mechanic said, My master is Abdul. He is a great man and performs miracles. He has promised me riches if I will be a tiger. By now the Danas wondered whether Emile's speech and his mind had been affected by his apparent association with the mysterious Mr. Abdul. His behavior was that of a person under the influence of hypnotism. Why did Mr. Abdul want you to be a tiger? Jean asked calmly. Emil Gifford gave a hollow laugh. Ha! To scare people away from the woods. They belong to Mr. Abdul and me. No one can take them away from us. So you were playing tiger over there, Jean quizzed their prisoner. Emil Gifford nodded. But what right have you to question me? Emil Gifford said. Louise laughed. You know us, Emil, and you know why we're asking you. I never saw you before in my life, the mechanic said stubbornly. Suddenly his eyes fastened on the stone tiger. In a high, faraway voice he chanted, Ancient ivory, priceless gifts, ghosts, black veins. Maybe, Louise whispered to her sister, his mind really has snapped. Jean was still suspicious. He w she was sure Emile Gifford was putting on an act. He was apparently a cohort of the strange Mr. Abdul, and now was trying to put all the blame on him. Had each of them worn a black robe and alternated in chipping the stone tiger, yet the dog Mickey had found Mr. Abdul's scent on the discarded garments. The Danas figured Emile had borrowed it the previous evening. By tacit agreement, the three girls guided their prisoner along the walk, which led to the Hillary cottage. He kept mumbling strange, incoherent phrases, none of which seemed to relate to the mystery. To their amazement, Emile did not seem to have any desire to break away. The girls decided to stand guard over him and notify the police. "'Why were you chipping the stone tiger?' Louise asked. "'I don't know. Mr. Abdul told me to.' "'Where did you hide when the police came a while ago?' she pressed. "'Oh, I know secret places around here,' was the non-committal answer, but he did not explain. When the girls walked into the Hillary house with Emile Gifford, Louise introduced him, giving Aunt Harriet and Mrs. Hillary a warning wink. The women realized at once that something unusual was going on, but waited for the girls to do their talking.' Emile Gifford's irrational replies to their question confirmed their theory that he was under some kind of spell. Jean went on to upstairs telephone and called Sergeant Rentley at his home. 
"'You girls have caught the ghost?' the officer asked unbelievingly. "'Well, you deserve a police medal for that.' Jean laughed. "'We'll accept it after we catch Mr. Abdul,' she responded. The sergeant arrived with other officer Gibbs shortly. Emile Gifford looked at them stupefied. "'Why are you police here?' he asked. "'Because a lot of people have been asking us to look for you,' Sergeant Rinley answered. "'One of them is your wife.' "'Oh, I'll be seeing her,' Emile said without enthusiasm. "'I got a job to do first. I am—' Suddenly he ceased speaking and refused to answer any further questions. Out of earshot of the prisoner, Louise told the officers about Emile's strange actions. "'We'll have our psychiatrist talk to him.' the sergeant promised. After the police had taken Emile away, Louise telephoned Mr. Pryor. He came over at once and was aghast upon learning the latest news about the mutilation of the stone tiger. That settles it, he said. There's no money to engage a night guard, but I'll act as one myself until this mystery is completely solved. But if you're on duty all day, Mrs. Hillary objected, You'll need to rest at night. No amount of persu persuasion would deter Mr. Pryor from his resolve. The curator announced that he would immediately station himself near the statue for the remainder of the night. If by chance I do fall asleep, he added, and anyone starts chipping, the noise will certainly wake me up. But if you're asleep, the person may harm you, Mrs. Hillary said worriedly. "'I'll hide behind some bushes,' the curator answered her, and then, without further delay, he left to take up his new duty. While the Danas were getting ready for bed, Louise said to her sister, "'If Emile was masquerading as a tiger, that means the woods are safe now. Tomorrow morning, let's go out there again and look around. We might even find Mr. Abdul's hiding place.' At breakfast, the Danas told their plans to the others and invited Elise to go with them. "'Are you sure you'll be all right?' Mrs. Hillary asked apprehensively. Three of us together will be safe,' her daughter said reassuringly. Louise drove silently to the area. She parked, and they started their trek. The path seemed more trampled than it had been the previous search. "'It looks as if several people have been here lately,' Jean remarked. They passed the tree, where the chipping tool had been found and kept on, proceeding cautiously. Presently, Elise looked up. "'Snowflakes,' she noted. "'We'd better hurry, so we won't get caught in a storm.' The girls had walked about a quarter of a mile into the woods without seeing a cabin or any place where a person could hide. A short distance ahead, Jean spotted a small pile of logs. It was well screened by trees and bushes. "'This is a funny place to stack logs,' she commented to the others. They all agreed. The three searchers left the path to examine the logs. They rolled a couple aside and were startled to see a flat wooden door beneath. Quickly they tossed aside the rest of the logs. The door, flush to the ground, was securely bolted with a long wooden bar. "'Could this be Mr. Abdul's hiding place?' Elise whispered. Louise shrugged and said she thought it was the opening to a cellar. Probably a house once stood here, and this is sort of an outside cold cellar. Let's look inside, though. 
Jean quickly yanked out the wooden bar. As the girls started to lift the heavy door, they heard a muffled cry from below. Elise stiffened. That's the Indian call for help, she said excitedly. Together, Jean and Elise flung the door wide. Leading downward were stone steps. Hearts pounding, the three girls descended into what seemed to be a cellar. A moment later, they stepped back in shocked dismay. Two prisoners, a man and a woman, securely tied and their heads covered, lay face down on the floor. As the girls dashed forward to release them, the heavy door above slammed shut. They could hear the big bolt being fastened into place. Oh, Louise cried out, how stupid of us not to have left a guard outside. Now we're all prisoners, too. The girls in total darkness could hear the logs being piled over the door. It flashed through the Dana's mind that even though rescuers did search the woods, they might never guess the logs to be a camouflage and pass right by the spot. At that moment, a menacing voice with a British accent came clearly to them from above. Miss Hillary and your friends, the Dana girls. I will cast a spell over all of you meddlers until I accomplish my mission here. Meanwhile, you will remain my captives. Chapter 20 Escape The girls, stunned and angry, stood in total darkness of their underground prison. The captive man began to speak in a tongue unfamiliar to the Danas. It's an Indian dialect, Elise whispered, then translated. He said there's a flashlight somewhere in this cellar. Instantly the girls got down on their hands and knees and began to feel around the earthen floor. Presently, Louise's fingers touched the flashlight in the corner and she snapped it on. The bright beam revealed the prisoners clearly. Their heads and faces were completely covered with silk scarves tied at the back of the neck. The rescuers untied the scarves and rolled the couple over on their backs. Elise gave a little scream of astonishment. Lona, back to, she cried out. The Danas stared in amazement at their friend, excitedly speaking in the Indian dialect with the man and woman. Both had fine features, dark brown eyes, and shining black hair. The girls released the prisoners, who stood up and exercised their cramped limbs. They were Lona and Bagtu Surat, Elise told the Danas. You remember that Lona was my ama when I was a little girl. The sisters nodded, eager to hear the couple's story. They waited fully ten minutes before Elise translated it, explaining that the Sharat spoke very little English. Back in India, she began, Lona and Bagtu worked for the Maharaja at the time he sent the stone tiger to my father. It seems that secretly the Maharaja was also sending some very old, extremely valuable ivory figurines for the museum. He did not tell anyone except my father how these were being sent, since some of his treasures had been stolen. It was all right to send the figurines that way, because there is no import duty on antiques. Then the Maharaja went hunting and did not hear of my father's death. In the meantime, another servant in the Maharaja's palace, a man named Rashalu, learned about the shipment. When he heard of my father's death, Rashalu determined to come to America and steal the collection. 
which Bagtu says is worth a fortune. Lona and Bagtu, always loyal to my family, decided to follow Rashalu to this country. When they arrived in Oak Falls, they heard the strange happenings in town and decided it was the work of Rashalu. He fancies himself to be quite a soothsayer, magician, and hypnotist. Lona thinks he is just a crazy egotist. Being in town has been embarrassing for the Surats. The police questioned them, but finally were satisfied with their credentials. I guess that's why Sergeant Renly didn't tell us about them. Lona says they asked her husband if he went under the name of Mr. Abdul. Finally, Lona and Bagtu decided that Rashalu must be the one using that name. The Surats wanted to contact Mother and me, Elise went on, but when they learned that Rashalu was causing trouble for us, they decided to try capturing Rashalu first. They did, however, leave the smoke charm, hoping it would make Mother feel better. Jean interrupted to ask what the other numbers of the charm meant. Elise queried Lona, who said that they were based on an old legend in Lona's family and signified a wish for health and happiness. Elise continued, Lona and Bagtu were becoming desperate because they could not find Rasalu. They were fearful he might have already disappeared with the ivory figurines. Then, quite by accident, they learned from a waitress at a restaurant in town that Mr. Abdul had gone to New York, but would be back. Lona and Bagtu practically camped at the airport, scrutinizing each incoming passenger. Finally, they were rewarded. Sunday night, a man wearing a gray wig and a mustache came through the terminal building. Lona and Bagtu recognized him, Rashalu in disguise. They accused him of scheming to steal the ivory figurines, if he had not already done so. Rashalu admitted he was hunting for the treasures, but assured the couple he had not yet found it. To Lona and Bagtu's surprise, he invited them to have dinner in town with him, and he would tell them everything. Unfortunately, they believed him. When he suggested stopping first for coffee at the airport lunch counter, they agreed. Then they all went out to his car. Suddenly, Lona and Bagtu became very sleepy. They awoke to find themselves tied up in their cellar. To their amazement, they could now remember certain details of the trip from the airport. For instance, that Rashalu had marched them a long distance through a wood. On the way, they had met a man called Emil. Rashalu had ordered Emil to get busy with the chipping tool and be sure to wear his black robe. The Surats also remembered being guided into this cellar by flashlight, which Rashalu had turned off and laid down once they were inside. Perhaps he heard some person or animal coming. In any case, he left the cellar, locked the door, and piled the logs on top. Just as they are now, said Louise. Well, Lona and Bactu's story corroborates a lot of our suspicions. We must get out of here and help the police capture Rashalu. But how? Elise asked dubiously. Louise and Jean were not to be discouraged and insisted they could smash the door open. They had observed that Bagtu was very mas muscular 
and despite the ordeal he had been through, could probably be of great assistance. Elise translated the plan, and Bagtu replied that he would do his best. The five prisoners ascended the steps of the wide opening and pushed with all their might, using their arms and shoulders. Suddenly they heard a cracking noise. It's beginning to give, cried Jean. Her optimism gave the weary captives renewed strength, and within five minutes they were able to wrench the bolt loose and raise one corner of the door enough for Elise to squeeze through. Quickly she tossed away the remaining logs. The captives emerged and took deep, long breaths of fresh air. We're free, Elise exclaimed. She turned to her former Amma and Bagtu, and the three began laughing and crying. They spoke rapidly in Indian dialect. Then Elise turned to the Danas. Lona and Bagtu can't thank you both enough. Now let's all go to my home for a good meal. We'll call the police first, said Jean, and put them on to Rashalu's trail. Luckily, only an inch of snow had fallen. Soon the group reached the Hillary cottage. Elisa's mother was amazed and overjoyed to see the Surats. While the four were talking excitedly, the Danes excused themselves and went upstairs. While Jean gave Aunt Harriet the full story, Louise telephoned Sergeant Renly. He was almost speechless at the news that could not praise the girls highly enough. We'll put a dragnet out once for Rashalu, the sergeant declared. This time we'll catch him for sure. By the way, Mill Gifford is out of the hypnotic state and quite rational now, but he won't talk about the mystery. The officer's prediction about Rashalu came true. He was captured the next day near the secret cellar, and the sergeant Rinley asked the Danas, Elise, and the Surats to come to headquarters. Rashalu, about fifty years old, was tall and slender. There was hatred in his piercing black eyes as he glared at the visitors. The prisoner protested his innocence, but the Dana's evidence, combined with that of Lona and Bagtu, was strong enough that he finally broke down. The self-styled sorcerer confessed that he had thought people in Oak Falls would be as superstitious as they were in India, and could be frightened off the streets at night. Rashalu, therefore, had planned the ghost act, hoping to keep most of the residents at home, so that his trek between the woods and the recluse's house, where he boarded, and the museum would be undetected. Also, he was less likely to have been disturbed in search at the museum, which he never gave up entirely. The Indian was responsible for putting the mask in the Dana's window and leaving the turban and snake and writing the notes to scare them off. Cora's gossiping around town had alerted Rashalu of the sleuthing ability of Louise and Jean. Despite the Danas were not discouraged, he had started to carry Jean off one night to give them a good scare and later buried the wax heads in the backyard. The Indian had phoned the Dana's home and imitated the wild animal sounds before giving the warning message. Rashalu admitted arranging the dog attack, playing the eerie flute music and throwing the mongoose at Louise. On his next visit to the museum, when he tried to retrieve his ring, 
he stumbled on the top step of the hidden stairway. One of his slippers fell off to the bottom. Rachalou thought he heard footsteps on the third floor and was afraid, however, to retrieve his slipper. The disgrace of being hounded by two girl detectives is unbearable. The Dana smiled, and Louise asked, What is your connection with Emile Gifford? Rachalou said, he had met Emile, and finding him gullible, knew he would be an excellent hypnotic subject. When Rachalou did not succeed completely with his method of influencing Emile, he had put a drug he always carried into Emile's food. It was the same kind of pill which he had slipped into the Surat's coffee. I even taught Emile to speak as I do, Rachalou bragged. From your local airport he pretended to phone me in New York where I went to borrow money. Under hypnotism, he sounded like my twin. I had him follow the Danas and use this trick to make them think I was still in Oak Falls. Rachalou had had two robes made for him and Emile by the recluse's sister. They were black, so the wearer would not be seen until he jumped out at his victims. Rachalou and Emile had taken turns playing ghost. They had, as suspected, managed to elude the police by figuring out about when the cruising patrol cars had stopped at various points. Through Emile's grandfather, a former caretaker of the old mansion, the mechanic had learned of the trellis, the secret entrance to the roof, and the hidden closet with the peephole. Rachalou, not wanting to climb the lattice, had ordered Emile to go with Mrs. Gifford to the museum, and while she entered to unlatch the front door, Rochalou had gained admittance several times before the Danes discovered the unlocked door. After investigating every likely hiding place in the museum for the valuable ivory figurines, Rochalou had decided that the only possible avenue left was the stone tiger. Like Mr. Pryor, Rachalou had believed the statue was solid. But one day he remembered having heard the Maharaja say, If you touch a white tiger's foot, you may meet sudden fortune. Rachalou and Emile had taken turns chipping the tiger's claw. Emile had worn his master's robe the night of the dance. But enough of Rachalou's scent had been left on it for the dog Mickey to pick it up. The Indian sullen face was led away. A guard now brought in Emile Gifford. Learning that Rachalou had confessed, the mechanic talked freely in his natural voice. He admitted tampering with the Dana's car so the accident would happen. Emile had figured that if the girls were injured and frightened and their automobile badly damaged, they would not attempt to solve the Oak Falls mystery. But nothing scared you. The mechanic had ingeniously made the tiger's eyes glow by using a chemical and had built the midget rec record player which the newspaper reporter had found in the beast's mouth. But I wish I had never met that Indian faker. <clears throat> Emile sobered. I told him everything I knew myself and what I'd learned from chorus gossiping. We even thought you might be hiding the ivory for Hillary's and tried to get in your house one night 
on a ladder to search for it. Emil laughed mirthlessly. Abdul tried to injure Louise with the mongoose and scare you away from the museum, but it didn't work. Sometimes he wasn't so smart. Once when he met to make plans, he stuck his chipping tool in a tree trunk when we were talking. He forgot to take it with him. When he went back for it, the tool was gone. I told him about the cellar in the woods. My grandfather had a cabin there at one time. Sometimes Abdul kept his magician's things and tiger suit in the cellar. Having completed his confession, Emil Gifford was led back to his cell. When Mrs. Hillary heard the whole story, she was amazed and remarked, It's hard to believe that any gift but the tiger was sent by my husband, and now that the mystery is solved, perhaps more people will be attracted to the museum, and our financial worries will be over. The widow seemed so happy that Louise and Jean did not hint. They felt the mystery was far from being solved. They asked Elise if she would walk to the museum with them to tell Mr. Pryor the news of Rashulu's capture. She willingly went along. On the way, Louise asked, Elise, do you think your mother would mind if we do a little chipping on the stone tiger to see if Rashulu's hunches are right? After all, Jean added, the Sarat seems certain that Maharaja did send the valuable ivory. Elise did not reply at once. Finally, she asked, Do you think it could be done without mutilating the statue any more? Mr. Pryor might know a way, Jean suggested to her. The curator was overwhelmed by the news. He agreed to get the museum's chipping tool and work on the tiger. Sure, he could do so in sure he could do so with little damage to the statue since mr pryor seemed uncertain where to start louise remarked perhaps emile unwittingly gave us a clue he mentioned black veins do you suppose one of these black stripes hides something of value jean was excited by the idea and remember that reference to the tiger's foot Maybe we should examine all these black stripes in the marble near the paws. Just then, Keith Bartlett came across the grounds. He was grinning and happy that the Danas felt sure he was bursting to tell them all something important. Before he had a chance to speak, Elise rushed up and told him all about what had happened during the past few hours and what Mr. Pryor and the girls were about to do. Intrigued, Keith watched in fascination. After a careful examination of the tiger's four legs, Mr. Pryor decided to follow an observation that Jean had made, that two veins between the claw and right foreleg of the stone tiger, being wider and less wavy than the others, might be the key. Carefully, Mr. Pryor wedged his sculptor's chipping tool alongside one stripe. This goes down more easily than I expected, he said excitedly. The curator proceeded with extreme caution, but at last he called out, It's coming! In a few seconds he lifted out a six-inch long section of the black and white marble. Everyone stared into the two-inch crevice. Why, there's nothing inside, said, Louis, said Elise in disappointment. 
I'll chip through the stone below, Mr. Pryor announced, to see if there's a hollow place beneath. This time he tapped the tool with a small hammer. The others watched tensely. Suddenly the curator exclaimed, I've broken through. There is a hollow space. It must have been purposely done when the tiger was sculpted. Breathless with excitement, the Danas and their friends watched as Mr. Pryor thrust his long fingers into the opening. A second later, his face broke into a wide smile. He withdrew his hand. In the palm of it was an exquisite ivory figurine of Chinese woman. It was so delicately carved and so perfect in symmetry that everyone exclaimed in admiration. That is the most beautiful piece I've ever seen, Elise cried. Small but very detailed stands out. It's marvelous, simply marvelous, said Louise, and Jean added, absolutely super. By this time, Mr. Pryor had reached inside the tiger's leg and drawn out an equally lovely carving. Within a few minutes, the ebony base on which the stone tiger stood was decorated with twelve of the priceless ivory figurines. There were oriental rulers, peasants, dancers, and several animals. As Mr. Pryor began to replace the chipped-out marble and inserted the removed section in its proper groove, he said, This is a happy day indeed. It's especially happy for Elise and me, said Keith Bartlett, looking at her fondly. I've been saving some big news on my own. You're looking at the new owner of the Oak Falls News. Oh, Keith, his fiancée exclaimed joyfully. What happened? Elise and the Danas learned that Mr. Archer, who was well again, had called Keith in and admitted that he finally realized he was right. He was the right person to carry on the newspaper. After a final talk with Mr. Homer and Mr. Simpson, the owner concluded their editorial policies would indeed make it cheap and sensational. Keith had attended the conference, and the two syndicate men had confessed to con conniving with an Indian man, Mr. Abdul, who claimed to be an astrologer. He had agreed to help them prepare the note to Elise, which warned her not to marry Keith but would throw suspicion away from them as the senders. They knew she would understand its significance and hoped she would break our engagement. If that had happened, I might have left town and not bought the paper, Keith smiled. But what they didn't know that Elise is not suspicious and that we are going to get married. As the group walked to the Hillary cottage, carrying the figurines, there was a loud praise of the Danas for solving the mystery. People will come from everywhere to visit Dad's museum and see this ivory, Elise predicted. At the celebration dinner that evening in the Hillary home, Elise looked unusually pretty and happy. Presently, she stood up to speak. From a package she had previously concealed, Elise brought out two matching gold bracelets. Each was set with a beautiful ruby. Louise and Jean, she said. These beautiful bracelets were bought in India some time ago, but now we'd like you to have them in appreciation for all that you've done. Mrs. Hillary then presented Aunt Harriet with a richly decorated silk scarf. All the Danas beamed and expressed their thanks for the gifts. Aunt Harriet was thinking, I'm sure another mystery will come their way soon.
and it did in the riddle of the frozen fountain. Louise's eyes twinkled as she asked those at the Hillary table, "'Anybody here have a flute? I'd like to give you a little snake-charming music, Oak Falls-style.' "'Better not,' Jean giggled. "'You might be a target again for a mongoose.' "'Oh, no!' moaned Cora, almost dropping the water pitcher, which she was filling glasses. As everyone laughed, Elise said, "'There's one more thing I want to show you, Louise and Jean.' She took Jean's new bracelet, and with her thumbnail, raised the ruby to reveal a tiny space beneath. "'What's that?' Elise said. "'It's an authentic Indian memento, this case in which you outwitted the tiger, a tiny replica of a tiger's claw, and some real tiger's whiskers.'" The end. Wow, that was a crazy mystery. I think my favorite part was when they found the secret panels. I've always liked old houses with like old door, like doors that are secret. Nobody can see them. And then you press a button and then it suddenly springs open. That's pretty cool. So did you know Christmas is right around the corner? It's closer than you think. It's only a month away. So I decided the next book I'm going to read is called A Christmas Treasury. And it has some collected short stories from uh, famous Christmas books such as um, Little Women and The Magi's Gifts, Miracle on 34th Street. So it should be fun because each one is just condensed and small, and that'll get you in the Christmas spirit. So until then... <music>